five this morning, we're going to finish it up. And uh, while you're turning there, I'm so thankful for Dave teaching last Sunday. And uh, he did a terrific job establishing for us the need and the importance and the power of prayer. And uh, Dave's going to be back in two weeks. I'm going to be in Idaho officiating my brother's wedding. And looking forward to that. Mark, if you're online, uh, looking forward to seeing you this weekend. And uh, then the following weekend, as I said, we'll be installing Dan as our pastor of family ministries. Exciting times. Well, one of the things Dave mentioned as he was speaking about prayer last week is that when we pray, we usually have to wait for the Lord's answer. And we don't like waiting. I don't like waiting. A recent study showed that on average, people become frustrated if they have to wait more than 90 minutes for a return email. An email. It used to take like three days to send the mail, a few days to answer it, and three days to get it back. But now, if we don't get an answer in 90 minutes, an important email, we can become frustrated. And frustration sets in if we have to wait more than 14 minutes for a restaurant meal, or 13 minutes for our luggage to arrive after a flight. We get frustrated if we have to wait more than 25 seconds for a traffic light, 22 seconds for a streaming video, a movie to load. No driving to the theater now, we get impatient if we have to wait 22 seconds for it to load, four seconds for a web page to load. See, as technology has become more and more advanced, we have not become more patient, we become less patient, but we need to get better at waiting because on average, Americans will spend three to five years of their life waiting, waiting in line, waiting in traffic, waiting on hold, and on and on. Have you ever been on an airline flight when you're put in a holding pattern? Yeah, here's a, here's a typical holding pattern, what it looks like. And the pilots have to, it's, it's based on a bunch of electronic coordinates in the sky, and a pilot has to fly around and around this oval racetrack in the sky until ATC clears them to leave the hold. Now, as a pilot, I got to practice these every six months just to stay current on my instrument rating, and it's one of my least favorite things because you're just going in circles, or, or more technically ovals, just going around and around and around, and it's just, I, I don't like to hold. I don't like to wait, but... We're going to, if you've been listening as we've gone through the book of 1 Peter, you probably are aware that there's a lot of waiting in this book. We've, we've talked about it a lot. And those of us who are in Christ, that are saved by, by grace through faith, we are in a spiritual holding pattern of sorts. And I want to point that out. Let me go back through a few points as we wrap up this book this morning and show you this holding pattern. Back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it spoke of a great inheritance that is kept in heaven for you until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We don't get it yet. We have to wait for it. And then in verse 7 of chapter 1, it speaks of your faith resulting in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Or you might think when he's finally revealed. We have to wait for that too. 
And then in verse 13 of chapter one, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That's future yet, we have to wait. If we fast forward to chapter four, verse 13, it says, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed, future. And then last, two weeks ago, in chapter five, verse one, we saw that it says, it says that we'll also share in the glory to be revealed. And in verse four and five, when the chief shepherd appears, future, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade. So if you're a believer, you're waiting for the return of Christ. You're in a bit of a spiritual holding pattern as we wait for this which is yet future. You, you, the, the inheritance, the eternal inheritance in Christ, sharing in his glory, all of that we have, to, we have to wait for. And so Peter makes this point over and over again. And so this morning as we wrap up this book, the message title is, While You Wait. And we're gonna look at chapter five, verses five through 14. And there's three parts to it that I want us to see. The first is the right apparel in verses five through seven. And then the right posture in verses eight and nine. And finally, the right power in verses 10 through, that should say 14, to the end of the book. So, while you wait, let's read through the text together and then we'll, we'll dive into it. So beginning in verse five, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the grace of God, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever, amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And with that, he ends the letter. Well, I want to look at those three parts, and I want to start with the right apparel that we see in verses five through seven. And, and these verses begin by addressing the young men, although it applies to young ladies as well. It says in verse five, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. Now, unless you're a child or a young adult, you probably don't like getting older. Young people do, they wanna get their driver's license, they wanna turn 21, but I think once we hit 25, 30, we're not so excited about getting older. We see downsides to that. I heard about three elderly brothers who lived together in the same house, and one of them was 92 years old, one was 94, and one was 96. And the 96-year-old 
went to draw a bath and he ran the water and as he put his foot in, he paused and he hollered downstairs and he said, was I getting in the tub or getting out of it? <laughs> well, the 94-year-old shouted up the stairs, I don't know, but I'll come check. So he heads up the stairs, he gets halfway up the stairs and he pauses and he says, was I going up the stairs or down the stairs? Now, the 92-year-old is sitting at the kitchen table enjoying a cup of coffee and listening to his brothers, and he just shakes his head. He says, I sure hope I don't get that forgetful when I'm older. He knocks on wood for good luck, and then he shouts out, I'll be up there to help you both as soon as I see who's at the front door. <laughs> we look at the downside of getting older. What was my point in that? I don't remember. <laughs> It's there somewhere. Oh yeah, that's it. Yeah, we don't like getting older necessarily, but it's not all bad. Because in scripture, there's a principle that you find in the, in the scripture that with age comes wisdom. That's a positive thing. With age comes wisdom. A person who's lived long enough to develop gray hair has had many opportunities to gain wisdom and understanding in both practical things and in spiritual things. We see in Proverbs, it says that gray hair is a crown of splendor. We don't think of it that way. I mean, I'd be happy just to have more gray hair. <laughs> I'd be okay with that. But it's a crown of splendor. It's something to look up to and to look forward to. Now, this doesn't mean that every elderly person is mature in their faith, spiritually mature. But it is a general principle that as we grow older, we move in that direction toward maturity and greater and greater wisdom. And so God commanded the Israelites in Leviticus 19, he said, rise in the presence of the aged, show respect for the elderly and revere your God, I am the Lord. He wanted us to respect age. I see a troubling trend in our society today, and that is young people don't respect age and they don't respect authority like they used to, I don't believe. Young people look down on anyone who's older. They don't see any value in their wisdom. They don't see a need to seek out wisdom from somebody who is older. And the Bible refers to that as being wise in their own eyes. You've heard that phrase. It's not limited to just young people. But Proverbs says that there is more hope for a fool than for one who is wise in his own eyes. Because this is a form of pride that blocks us from growing in maturity and wisdom because we think we got it all together. We don't need to listen to anybody else. I mean, a young person, even if they go on their own and fail, they figure they're better off than if they would have taken someone else's advice. They just don't see that wisdom in someone who is older. And this attitude usually begins at a young age, and it usually can be related to parenting. Children who are given too many decision-making freedoms or too many verbal freedoms when they're young can more easily become wise in their own eyes. Before long, they're telling mom and dad what they're going to do. No, mommy, I'm gonna have this for breakfast. No, mommy, I'll go do that after I put away and do this, after I finish my game. And as they grow older, that continues to develop this attitude. There's not a submissiveness and a respect for authority. And before long, a, a young child is saying, I'm going across the street to play with Susie. They're not saying, 
mom, dad, is it okay if I go across the street? They're telling their parents what they want to do, what they're going to do. There's a lack of submission to authority. This is one of the things that we cover in the parenting class, and it's just a really important principle that starts young, and it's so subtle, we don't see it, but once you, once you start learning that principle, you're, oh yeah, he just told me what he was gonna do, and they develop this mindset. There's not a submission to authority. There's not a respect for the wisdom that comes with age. But a child who's properly trained in biblical values will show respect for the wisdom of a parent it's a child who calls home from college and says, Mom, Dad, what do you think I should do in this situation? What would be the best way to handle this? See, they value the wisdom of their parents and they respect their authority. So verse five begins by saying, young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. But then it continues. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, that's saying that a, an older person shouldn't just dismiss a younger person and assume that there's nothing of value they can learn from that young person. Remember, Paul told young Pastor Timothy, don't look down on, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. When we first came to Riverside, it was 2006, 2007. And I remember real clearly, Walt Barrett, our former senior pastor, he said something to me. He said, Paul, it's really wonderful when your children reach an age where they can give you good, godly counsel. And our kids at the time, I think they were five, 12, and 15. And so I looked forward to that day. I always, always set a kind of a high bar in my mind. And that day came not too much longer, too much later. I remember when I was considering the transition from corporate life to pastoral ministry. My oldest two children were good, godly counsel to me. And now that my youngest, Nathan's 18, I see the gifts that God has given him. And I value the perspective he brings to certain situations. There's a lot of times where I will ask my kids for their counsel. And so they have gifts from God as well. Maybe some gifts that I myself don't have. So this now opens it up from just young, being submissive to those who are older, but all of you, all of you, to have that same attitude. And it says that we're to clothe ourselves with humility. That's why I'm calling this first part the right apparel. Clothe yourselves. And the phrase translated clothe yourselves goes back to an ancient word that literally means to put on an apron in order to serve somebody. Now, even today, we think, many people think of an apron as like a bad thing. It, 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 it's subservient. It's demeaning. Well, it is subservient, and that's the very point to put on an apron to serve others. Clothe yourselves with humility. I mean, I think right away of our Lord Jesus that night in the upper room. He took off his outer garment and he wrapped the towel around his waist like an apron and he got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And he said, I set an example for you that you should do as I have done. He said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. So that's our, that's our example. We're to clothe ourselves with humility. 
and, and we're to clothe ourselves and we're to serve one another. Um, yesterday we had a memorial service here for Carolyn's husband and I was so blessed to see more than a dozen people who pitched in to serve in a significant way, whether set up, audio, video, food, cleanup, ushers, greeters, people just jumped in to help show love to this family that is mourning. And others from the church body came and attended, even though they might not have known David personally, they came to love and support this dear family. God is pleased with that. That's beautiful in his sight. Well done, church. It was such a blessing to see everybody coming together to serve this family in humility. So, verse five gives a reason for this humility. It says, because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud because it's a characteristic of the devil. Remember? Satan wanted to elevate himself, Isaiah 14, and God said, no, you'll be put down low. He was prideful. And I've said again and again that you're never more like Satan than when you're exercising selfish pride. And then on the other hand, you're never more like Jesus Christ than when you're exercising selfless humility. This is what Christ did. That's our model. So humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up. Here's that waiting part again. In due time. In due time. We're to be humble while we wait. We're to serve while we wait. And God himself will exalt us. He will lift us up. But if instead we're prideful, self-serving, it says he'll oppose us. Can you imagine being opposed by God? What a frightening thing. We talked about this in our, in our study of the book of Proverbs. The way up is the way down, and the way down is the way up. And it sounds counterintuitive to our minds, to our flesh. Especially in the fallen world that we live in that exalts pride and looks down upon humility. But remember we said God's values will often seem backwards when viewed through the eyes of sin. But God's, God's values will appear upside down. But they're not. Our thinking is upside down. God has always had it right. Humility has always been virtuous. And pride has always been evil. I love Tony's testimony last night. Or last week, rather. Where he showed how God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. There can be no pride. See, God would rather use a humble, maybe incapable but willing heart over someone who's proud, self-sufficient, thinks they have it all together. See, this is the heart of our God. So we're in a holding pattern. We're waiting for the return of Christ. We're citizens of heaven, but right now we live in a very broken, fallen world. We see the world around us just in a moral freefall. Maybe we're even suffering some, some uh, pain from doing good, and yet we're, we're suffering for doing good. Now, with all of that going on, do you think there's an opportunity for anxiety? 
I feel it. Is it just me? Anybody else feel that? You can get a bit anxious. Well, I'm thankful that God gives us verse seven. He says, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. It literally means to throw upon, to throw all of your anxiety upon him. Take two hands and throw it on him. Now, right after I graduated high school, I, I worked in Missouri on a family farm for about six months, and I loved it. I loved working outdoors. I loved that whole farming lifestyle. I really loved operating some of that big equipment. And we had this enormous tractor with four huge back wheels and, and a five-bottom plow. And one of my favorite things was plowing. And you take that plow, and you lower the front end, and then you lower the back end, and you hit the throttle, and it just rips open the ground. It just peels it open like a breaking wave. It was very satisfying. I could plow all day long. And I did, even into the night. I'd be plowing up and down the hills of the Ozarks. But every now and then, the plow would hit a rock. Or worse, some fields of rocks. And the thing would buck and kick. And sometimes it'd just be dancing off the tops of the rocks. And it wouldn't go down into the soil. It wasn't effective at plowing. So every few years, rather than harvesting crops, they had to do what was called rock picking. And what you do, you get a big dump truck out there, and someone dives, drives the dump truck really slow through the field, and you get a crew of people on each side, and they pick up these rocks off the surface, and they throw them up onto the truck. It was a lot of work. Some of these rocks required a couple people to get a hold of them and to throw them up, cast them onto the truck. I think life is a lot like that. It's, it's, it's fertile soil a lot of the times, and we enjoy life, but we hit these rocks. Sometimes we hit a field of rocks, and this can cause us anxiety. And so what do we do when we hit those rocks? Maybe it's the loss of a job, an unexpected illness. Maybe it's a relational challenge. Maybe it's suffering for doing good. We hit these rocks. What do we do? Imagine if we just took that big old boulder and put it on our shoulder and just kept carrying it along and along. And, and meanwhile, we're carrying this huge boulder and we hear this, like, I can't do that whistle thing with my fingers. <laughs> Can somebody do that? I can't do that. We're carrying this huge boulder and we hear this whistle and we look up and here's Jesus in a dump truck. And he says, hey, throw it on the back. And we, no, 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 I can't. I'm carrying it. He's like, come on. Throw the boulder on the back. But we don't do it. We keep carrying it. How, how foolish is that? I mean, how stupid. But that's what we do when we fail to cast our burdens upon him. We carry them ourselves. I like what the old hymn said. What a friend we have in Jesus. It says, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. It's one of the ways we cast that burden onto the Lord. And Dave talked about that last week. We have a God who cares for us. We have a God who cares for us. And he demonstrates it by saying, I don't want you carrying these burdens, these anxieties yourself. Cast them on me. I'm a lot stronger than you. Let me carry these for you. But in our stubbornness and our foolishness, we don't do it often enough. We hold on to it. 
So we need to clothe ourselves with humility. That's a right apparel. And we need to cast our anxiety upon the Lord while we're waiting. And let's look next. We also not only need the right apparel, we need the right posture in verses eight and nine. Oh, I'm off. Out of sync here. There's the rock picking. That's not me. That's just some people picking those rocks. That is not a fun job, but I've done it. So we need, secondly, the right posture. Verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of sufferings. Now, when you think about being alert as a Christian, you probably think about keeping an eye on the ungodly people around you, watching what they're doing, watching the news, seeing what's going on. Look at these unbelievers. Look at the world. Look at the way it's going. I need to be alert. I need to be a watchman on the wall. And that's fine. But that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about watching yourself, not them. Be alert to what you're doing. Be alert to your own weaknesses, your own propensity. Not them. Because the biggest threat to us is not the ungodly things going on around us. It's our own tendency toward ungodliness within us. That's the biggest threat. And that's what God tells us to be on guard against. Satan doesn't hassle the world the way he hassles believers. He doesn't have to. They're in his camp. But once you take a stand for the Lord, now you've got a target on your back. Now he's coming after you. He wants to see you fall. So we're to be on guard. It says your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I mean, it sounds like kind of imaginative writing, like something C.S. Lewis would maybe write, like very illustrative, uh, a roaring lion. But this isn't a novel. This is the word of God. This is truth. Now, it might use this very vivid, descriptive language of roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and he's prowling around, but that is communicating a, a very real truth. What is that truth? The devil's looking for opportunities to destroy believers. And like a lion, he's seeking out those who are most vulnerable. That's what this is saying. The Department of Homeland Security has a term they call soft target. You've heard that? A soft target? They define it as a person, thing, or location that's easily accessible to the general public and relatively unprotected, making it vulnerable to military or terrorist attack. That's what the enemy's looking for. He's looking out across Riverside Community Church and saying, who's a soft target? Who can I go after? Who can I more easily devour? Soft targets are those who are weak, isolated, distracted, immature, ill-prepared, maybe even somebody going through suffering. I think we're more vulnerable when we're going through suffering. And so he's looking for those vulnerabilities so that he can bring us down. So it says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. Notice it doesn't say rebuke him. Here's the difference. It says resist him. I heard about a young pastor just out of seminary, and he was working hard to make ends meet. And one day his wife came home with a $250 dress. And he's, oh, honey, how could you do that? You, you know we can't afford that kind of expenditure. And she said, well, 
I was standing there looking at the dress through the window, and the next thing, there I was trying it on. And it's like the devil whispered to me, you look fabulous wearing that dress. You should buy it. And the young pastor says, well, don't you know what I do when I'm faced with a situation like that? I say, get behind me, Satan. And she said, well, I did, I did. But then he said, it looks fabulous from back here too. (laughs) We're not to rebuke the devil. We're to resist the devil. And there's a difference there. Some people say that when tempted, we should like address the devil directly, rebuke him, just shout out as loud as you can. I bind you, I rebuke you, devil. I don't see any place in scripture where it tells us to do that. In fact, not even the angels rebuke the devil. Even one of the most powerful of angels, Michael, he didn't dare accuse Satan. You know what he said? The Lord rebuke you. He wouldn't do it himself. So we're to resist the devil and stand firm in the faith, not rebuke the devil. In, in the world of football, the most important thing for a defensive lineman is the stance that he takes before the ball is snapped. Here's Khalil Mack in a three-point stance. And football coaches say this. They say the right stance provides stability and power against an opponent. Now, what if that player was distracted? What if he's standing there waving to his mom in the stands when that ball is snapped? He's going to get clobbered, probably injured. You have to be, you have to take the right stand. You have to stand firm. So how do we stand firm in the faith then? Jesus gave us the model. We stand firm in the faith by focusing on the truth of God's word. Remember when he was tempted over and over again, what did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written. He countered the devil's lies with the truth of God's word. Satan wants to distort and twist the truth and get us to believe it. That's what he did in the garden. Did God really say, I I don't think you got that right. I, I think you're mistaken. Did God really say that you shouldn't do that. And he does the same thing today. He wants to plant that seed of doubt in our minds. He wants us to believe things like this. God doesn't care about what you're going through. He doesn't love you. Look at, you're suffering. He's left you to suffer. God doesn't care. What do you do when you face that kind of, those kinds of thoughts? You go back to the truth of God's word. I like Barb's motto, run to truth. Don't just saunter over to it. Run, run there, get a hold of it, hold on to it. Grab that truth. That's what we're to do. We're to take every thought captive. See, the best defense that we have for countering Satan's lies is the truth of God's word. We have to run to truth. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why will he flee? Because he can't stand up in the face of God's truth. Greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who is in the world, Satan. He can't stand up to the truth of God's word. He has no answer for it. And so we gotta go back to the truth of God's word. When we feel that temptation, What does God say about it? How does he view it? What does he say we should be doing? How should we be thinking and processing this? 
See, that's taking every thought captive. So don't talk directly to the devil. Don't rebuke the devil. Resist the devil. I'd rather talk to God about the devil than talk to the devil about God. Lord, give me the strength to stand firm in the midst of this. Process through what his word says. Let that be where your mind is. Look at what else it says in verse 9. Because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. They're facing persecution. They're suffering for doing good. They're being hassled by the enemy, just like you and I are. 1 Corinthians 10 says, there's no temptation to seize you except that which is common to man. In other words, you're not alone. You're not unique. Your brothers and sisters across the globe are facing the same types of temptations and trials and even suffering. So we're to be self-controlled and alert. We're to watch ourselves. We're to resist the devil and stand firm in the faith, running to the truth of God's word. Maybe you haven't been standing firm in your faith. Maybe you've gotten kind of sloppy in that. And, and as a result, you've fallen. Well, there's encouragement in this. Who's writing this letter? Peter. What did Peter do? He denied the Lord three times after he told him he was going to do it. The Lord said, you're going to deny me three times. <laughs> never denied. And he did. He fell. He stumbled. But God restored him. And look at how he's using him now. So there's great encouragement for us. Confess the sin and go back and stand firm in your faith. Resist the devil. So we're to be self-controlled and alert. We're to resist the devil. We're to stand firm. That's the right posture as we wait for the return of Christ. Let's look finally at the right power in verses 10 through 14. It says, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever, amen. Someone took the time to count that there's 950 names and titles of God in the Bible. I didn't verify it, but it's a pretty big number. But one of the most beautiful, they're all beautiful, but look at the title that's used here, the God of all grace. And you know what grace is, it's a gift. It's a free gift, it's different than a loan, there's no payback on grace. Ownership changes hands, it's yours and it's free, that's grace. I'm sure you've heard the acronym for grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-Y. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's free to you. That's grace. But when we think about grace, we often think of it in the context of our salvation. For it is by grace we've been saved through faith. For those who already believe, that's a past grace. But there's also a present grace as you go through the trials of life. Grace that your prayers are heard as we focus on last week. Grace that Christ is interceding for you. Grace that you can cast all of your anxiety upon him. Grace that God is providing everything you need for life and godliness. Grace that he's working all things together for your good. This is a present grace. We're to abound in all grace. That's a lot of grace, but there's even more. That's a present grace. There's also a future grace. 
I read the verse earlier, chapter one, verse 13. It said that we're to set our hope fully on the grace, uh, the grace to be given to you when Christ is revealed. Future grace. There's even more coming. That's a grace of glorification. What does that look like? Well, it's the grace of seeing the Lord face to face. The memorial service yesterday, I love the song that was picked out. I can only imagine. And then when I see the Lord face to face, Elizabeth could hardly get those words out because it's so stirring to think of that moment, that future grace. Grace when we see the Lord face to face. Grace when we're given a glorious resurrection body. Grace when we receive an eternal inheritance, an eternal inheritance. Grace when we live in his presence forever. That's what we need to have our hope set on as we go through the trials of life. See, we need to remember that beyond the hurt, there's heaven. There's heaven. Don't get caught up in the stuff here. Keep your eyes on the prize on what lies ahead, the future grace. But guess what? We have to wait for it. We have to wait. It's not here yet for those of us who are still alive. Remember the old, old Milwaukee beer commercials where the guys are out fly fishing and they catch their fish and then they come in and they're sitting on the back deck cooking them up and drinking their beer. Remember what they said? Anybody remember? Yeah, it proves you're old. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> that was an ad back in the 80s. Now, you're not that old because you still remember it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got 10 more years. <laughs> 10 more years. We'll check back with you, Brad. They say, they're, they're, they're drinking their beer and they're eating their fish and they go, it doesn't get any better than this. Yeah, it does. <laughs> For a believer, it gets a lot better than this. My goodness. I mean, it's nice to catch fish. It's nice to sit out with your buddies on the deck on a nice evening. But it gets way better than this. For a believer. For a believer. But if you're not a believer, I have bad news. It doesn't get any better than this. You better enjoy the fish and the beer because that's as good as it's going to get. See, for a believer, this world is as bad as it gets. For an unbeliever, this world is as good as it gets. And I don't say that in a mocking way. I say that so that people will take hold of what God has for them, the riches in Christ Jesus, the grace that is yet to come. So, verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I want you to take and put your own name at the beginning of verse 10 and then read it again. Don, Tom, Cindy, Pat, Rose. Rose, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you've suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's written to you guys. Praise God. Is that not tremendous news in times of trial? That's why Peter is writing this by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Look at two words. Maybe underline them there. A couple words. Eternal glory. And compare that with a little while. Eternal glory in a little while. There's no comparison. How long is a little while? It's about like that. That big. How big is that? 
That's the dash between your birthday and your death day. It's that long, a little while. How long is eternity? It's never ending. It's eternal. They're not even worth comparing. Paul said, our light and momentary trials are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs them all. A little while. We need to be reminded of this. And we need to keep that perspective so that we can persevere in the midst of our trials, our suffering, that is, for a little while. Look at what else it says. He will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. We do need to stand firm and resist the devil. But the power to do it comes from Christ, not ourselves. We can never do it on our own or in our own strength. Dave talked last Sunday about the tremendous power that is available to us when we call out to God in prayer. We pray according to his will. We draw upon his power. And he will raise us up when we humble ourselves. He will help us stand firm when we resist the devil. To him be the power forever and ever, it says. That's the right power. And it's a powerful point that Peter ends this letter with. But there's more. He has this final concluding mark. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to touch on a few points. He says in verse 12, With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Silas, or maybe your translation has a full name, Silvanus. He was the scribe that was writing this down. It was the custom. Peter would have dictated it and he would have written it down. He was the amanuensis, they were called. And it says in verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings. And so does my son Mark greet one another with a kiss of love. She is referring to a church and Babylon is most likely a moniker for Rome. And so it's probably saying the church in Rome sends you her greetings. It's a warm greeting. And Mark, also known as John Mark, he calls him his son. He's like a spiritual son. It's someone that he's discipled in the faith for many, many years. John Mark is the one who went out with Paul on the first missionary journey and bailed. He turned around and went back. And, and Paul didn't even want to take him the second time. But God restored him. And here, he's a faithful servant serving alongside of Peter. God restored him to fruitful ministry. And then he closes with these final words. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Not to everyone. It doesn't say peace to all of you. It doesn't say peace to every single one of you. Sorry. I got to teach what's here. It says peace to all of you who are in Christ. I like the bumper sticker that says... No Jesus, no peace. N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace. But then it also says, no Jesus. Can't, wow, I'm really behind here, guys. <laughs> the bumper sticker's coming. No Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace, K-N-O-W. Or maybe you've seen it on a t-shirt like this. You can't have the peace 
of Christ until you have peace with Christ. You have peace with God. And you might say, well, I'm not really opposed to God. I just, I don't see a reason to surrender my life to him. Well, you might not feel like it, but you are opposed to God. You're his enemy. You're at war with him. Romans says the sinful nature is hostile to God. It's at war with God. Those are powerful words, but that's what it is. The natural man, apart from salvation, is an enemy of God and at war with him. But the good news is Christ is the prince of peace. Not peace between people, peace between God and man. The the cross was the ultimate peace treaty. And he extends this peace to us. You might be his enemy, but he still loves you. He still died for you. He offers his grace, grace of salvation, present grace then, and future grace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So if you haven't surrendered to him, stop fighting him. Put down your weapons. Humble yourself. Confess your sin, your need for a savior. Ask him to forgive you and he will. He'll make you a child of God. To all who received him, to those believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Guess what? Children share in their father's inheritance, future grace. So, he has this perfect love. We need to surrender to that. Well, Christian, you're in a holding pattern. You're in a holding pattern. You're waiting for the return of Christ, and you're waiting for that future glory. And you need to remain faithful while you wait. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. That's the right apparel. Secondly, don't be anxious about anything. You have a God who cares for you. He tells you to cast all of your anxiety upon him so he can take that from you. Resist the devil and stand firm in the faith. That's the right posture. The devil's roaming around looking for soft targets, the vulnerable, those who aren't in the word, those who aren't growing in Christ, those who have no Christian fellowship, they're all by themselves alone, isolated. He's looking to devour you. How do we stand firm? We focus on the truth of God's word. We need to run to it. And then after you've suffered a little while, after you suffered a little while, keep waiting. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. That's the right power forever and ever and ever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter written to a group of suffering believers, but written also to us. And I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. What a friend we have in Jesus, one who paid the penalty for our sin one who cares for us, one who wants to carry our burdens for us, one who strengthens us in every trial, and one who's coming back again so that we can share in his glory. God, forgive us the time for the times where we've lived like it's all about us rather than about you. Forgive us, God, and give us great patience as we wait for this future glory. Help us to remain faithful while we wait. And God, we ask this 
for your kingdom and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray. Amen.